On May 19th, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad landed in the Saudi capital, Riyadh. Embraced by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Assad was in town to attend the latest session of the Arab League. It was the first appearance of Assad at an Arab summit since Syria was expelled in 2011. In the intervening years, the Syrian president conducted a brutal crackdown on opposition groups and oversaw the slaughter and indiscriminate killing of tens of thousands of civilians. Although precise numbers are difficult to verify, the UN believes around half a million people have been killed during the Syrian civil war. The true number is likely higher. Upon his return, President Assad addressed the Arab League and without a hint of irony, told them... There is an added hope amid the Arab-Arab, as well as the Arab regional and international rapprochement brought in by this summit, which I hope will signal a new phase in Arab coordination and solidarity among us, and peace and prosperity in our region, instead of war and destruction. Assad's return to the Arab League marks the latest step in a normalisation process between Syria's government and the rest of the Arab world. This week, why has Syria been readmitted to the Arab League? Who stands to gain from the normalisation? And what does this mean for the Syrian people, both inside and outside the country? I'm Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. The 32nd Arab League Summit on May 19th brought together 22 nations from across the Arab world. But before we go on, it's probably worth asking, what is the Arab League? Yeah, I mean, the Arab League has been around since 1945, so it's been around for a while. Britain at the time supported the establishment of the Arab League because they thought that this would be a good way of preserving British interests in the region, especially with Egypt being a close ally of of Britain at the time, and that's why the Arab League is based in Cairo. This is Malik al-Abda, a conflict resolution expert focused on Syria and managing director of Conflict Mediation Solutions. However, the usefulness of the Arab League has declined considerably uh, since then because, simply put, the Arab nations that make up the the Arab League, currently there's 22 members, don't have enough in common to make the Arab League a success. So initially, you know, the the purpose of the Arab League was to strengthen and coordinate political, cultural, economic and social programs of its member states and also mediate disputes between them and with third parties. But there isn't enough trust between uh, these states. The League has had its moments, notably helping with international allies to end the conflict in Lebanon and reverse the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. During other points of conflict and tension in the region, the League has also issued a number of statements of condemnation and resolutions, but they have rarely proved effective. Functionally, it serves as a club of regional respectability. So if you are a member of the Arab League, it means other members of the Arab League have certain duties towards you, the most important of which is not to interfere in your internal affairs and to recognize you as an equal. Nation states sitting around a table as equals is a nice idea, but some states are a bit more equal than others. Well, first of all, when you say the Arab League, it's really 
small number of states that hold influence within the Arab League. Now, in the case of bringing Assad into the fold, as it were, Saudi Arabia has taken the lead and is very much the most influential uh, party in all this. The UAE has been pushing for this for quite a number of years. Uh, Egypt has been uh, somewhat lukewarm, not exactly enthusiastic, but uh, it hasn't uh, uh, vetoed uh, this attempt. Other Arab countries have simply said, uh, we don't accept this, but we're not going to stand in the way of Saudi Arabia. So really, this is a Saudi initiative. This is a Saudi-pushed move. The Syrian regime is under Western sanctions linked to war crimes and crimes against humanity. Assad is widely seen as a brutal dictator and a threat to his people and the region due to his alliance with Russia and Iran and involvement in state-sponsored drug trafficking. So why would Saudi Arabia want to normalise? To understand why Syria is being uh, brought back into the Arab League or the suspension now has been lifted, uh, you have to look at Saudi Arabia's motivations. Saudi Arabia, the irony, of course, of all this is that Saudi Arabia doesn't really have any active interest in Syria itself. This is not about Syria at all, albeit Assad is the main beneficiary of broader uh, diplomatic and political developments. There are two main geopolitical aspects that are of concern for Saudi Arabia. The first is the withdrawal of the US. The US and Saudi Arabia have shared a long and fruitful relationship. But as the US moves away from the region, Saudi Arabia is re-examining its regional ties in preparation for a day when they can no longer rely on Washington to be by Riyadh's side. Secondly, Saudi Arabia is witnessing the growing influence of both China and Russia in the Middle East. Both allies of the Assad regime in Damascus, Saudi Arabia is seeking to ensure that it finds itself on the right side with the right friends. Staying good with Russia and China will also help secure Saudi oil exports to China, but also to other nations such as India, as the US seeks energy independence. So rather than being seen simply as a loyal Western ally that will do whatever the United States wants it to do, it needs to position itself into a more neutral stance and essentially play the game that Turkish President uh, Rajab Tayyip Erdogan has been doing for many years, which is to play both sides of the fence, remain part of a, a, a Western alliance and gain Western technology from Western technology, Western capital, but at the same time, offer the Eurasian alliance some uh, goodies in terms of geographic access, be it buying their uh, hydrocarbons and stuff like this. So Saudi Arabia is trying to position itself into a more neutral uh, stance and it wants to be a leading power in the what is known as the global south. When we ask the question, why is Saudi Arabia opening the doors of the Arab League for Syria, we can see that the decision has much more to do with Syria's friends than it does to do with the embattled country. So we have this global south phenomenon emerging. Saudi Arabia wants to be a player with, on that stage, coupled with you know countries like uh, South Africa, Brazil, India, and so on. So given this changed uh, Saudi posture, it doesn't make sense for Saudi Arabia to continue ostracizing Bashar al-Assad. Um, not because suddenly they've realized Bashar al-Assad is a good guy or that Syria has anything to offer Saudi Arabia, but they need to signal to the Eurasian alliance that your friends are now my friends and I don't have problems with your allies and proxies. And Assad is very much 
heavily reliant on the Eurasian alliance's support for his continued existence in power. Um, so that's, the, in a way, the, the Bashar al-Assad is an uh, unintended beneficiary from global changes. Um, and so this is not about Syria at all, and I don't think Saudi, Saudi Arabia is that interested in Syria itself. It has completely lost interest in Syria years ago. For the Assad regime in Damascus, the normalization process and being readmitted to the Arab League is a win for them, and a pretty cheap win. Syria is unlikely to repay Saudi Arabia's diplomatic kindness for one main reason. Syria has really very little to offer. Assad is pretty much on life support, economically speaking, and in terms of his uh, military capacity to maintain control over 60% of the country that he has control over. He's heavily reliant on the Iranians and the Russians. Uh, economically, he's reliant on Iran, also reliant on Iran, Iran and Russia for credit lines. In fact, the price for Assad could be less to do with what it can send to the Gulf states and more about what it can stop sending to the Gulf states. The only thing that he can offer is a promise to stop sending drugs. That's the Captagon, but also other types of drugs uh, such as crystal meth to Jordan and Saudi Arabia and the, and the Gulf region, Kuwait, the UAE, and so on. The largest market, of course, is Saudi Arabia. Captgon is the brand name for an amphetamine that was first produced in Germany in the 1960s before being widely banned. During the conflict, production and sales have boomed in Syria. Swallowed in pill form or crushed and snorted, Captgon has proved popular in the Gulf. It can give the user a huge bolt of energy, making it desirable for students who want to study all night, uh, people working night shifts or two jobs, high-powered professionals, or simply those who are seeking to party all night long. The appetite-suppressing nature of the narcotic also make it popular with those trying to lose weight. While a precise figure for Syria's Captagon trade is difficult to gauge, in April 2022, the New Lines Institute reported the previous year's market was worth at least $5.7 billion. For a broken country with a broken economy, this is a vast sum of money. But also it's a political weapon. Um, it's a way of blackmailing the Gulf. And it's essentially saying, look, if you, do, if you don't play nice with us, we'll flood your country with drugs and there's no way they can stop this because we've been doing this for so many years we have so many different ways of trafficking the drugs but only we can stop it at source uh, but you've got to give us money so it's a, it's, a, it's a political blackmail and so what, what Assad wants from Saudi Arabia is financial assistance to keep paying the state, state employees to keep paying his soldiers to rebuild parts of Syria but apart from that, he has a little to offer. So it's more of a Assad offering Saudi Arabia a huge bill in return for stopping the drugs, or at least curtailing the drugs. Normalising with the Assad regime will likely prove to be a shrewd geopolitical move for Saudi Arabia and will complement their previous normalisation efforts with Iran. In fact, it has been speculated that a Saudi-Syria normalisation process was a stipulation for Iran during their recent deal. But there are 22 member states in the Arab League. What's in it for the rest of them? When it comes to the Arab world, there are a number of key Arab states. 
that are directly relevant to the Syria case. One is Egypt. Historically, Egypt's role in the region has been a mediator and uh, a moderating influence. It has helped to mediate conflicts or to play a role in averting certain conflicts. So this is Egypt's natural role. And so it, when it comes to Syria, it wants to see some kind of political process where it can play a meaningful role. After 12 years of conflict, the Assad regime has emerged as the victor. He remains in office, and the brutal rule that the Syrian people rose up against in 2011 remains. However, his control only extends over 60% of the country, and unless the regime wishes to engage in a large-scale offensive operation, then a political solution would seem sensible. But Saudi Arabia has not helped in this respect. Uh, in this respect, its interests are not, not entirely aligned with those of Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia has already taken the decision it's going to embrace Bashar al-Assad wholeheartedly and is not interested in a step-for-step -step type of reciprocal uh, concession-giving uh, process. We've seen uh, statements by its foreign minister that seem to be kind of slightly kind of pouring cold water over the triumphalism of Assad's return to the Arab League, saying, look, this is just the beginning of a process rather than an end state. Uh, so Egypt wants to see some kind of genuine negotiation with Assad. And Egypt isn't the only Arab nation hoping to lead a political resolution. Similarly, Jordan is in a similar position to Egypt in the sense that it also wants to position itself as a mediator. Uh, historically, also Jordan has played this role um, on behalf of Western interests in the region. Uh, those who wanted a back channel with Israel often went through Jordan. The Palestinians have always relied on Jordanian diplomacy or had relied on Jordanian diplomacy. With an increasing number of Arab states normalizing with Israel and Jordan's recent history when it comes to preventing conflict around the region, they could really do with a diplomatic win. Jordan wants to find for itself a meaningful role, and this is very important for King Abdullah and the future of the Hashemite dynasty in Jordan. And so they see Syria as low-hanging fruit. This is somewhere where they could establish a working relationship with Assad and bridge the gap between Western maximalist positions and a more sort of Arab pragmatic approach. So they also have an interest in a genuine negotiation process with Assad rather than just giving everything away at the first go, which is what essentially the UAE and Saudi Arabia are doing. Qatar is another country who have in recent years played a diplomatic role in the region. But they made their feelings known at the recent Arab League summit when they walked out in an apparent protest as President Assad gave his address. Even if, and that's a big if, Egypt and Jordan were able to pull the diplomatic rabbit from the hat and put forward a political solution, then they would still have to get Assad to agree to it. Well, Arab normalization with Assad will make the idea of a negotiated political settlement even less likely because Assad will have even less incentive to engage in a genuine negotiation with the opposition under UN auspices as per UN Security Council Resolution 2254. Security Council Resolution 2254 called for a ceasefire and political settlement in Syria and was adopted in 2015. Uh, he feels empowered, so why even bother engaging in this process? I mean, he was refusing to engage when, you know, militarily he was under real pressure. 
2015. So why should he engage now? It makes even less sense. So yes, it do, you know, the Arab normalization does weaken the prospect for a negotiated political settlement. But let's be honest. I mean that that prospect has been quite distant for for quite some time, and arguably the the countries that uh, neg- they helped negotiate the, the 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 Security Council resolution back in December 2015 themselves have lost interest in implementing this resolution. Or at the very least, there isn't the, the willingness to invest the political capital to implement the resolution in its entirety. Syria can certainly chalk up its return to the Arab League as a diplomatic win. For 12 years, the Assad regime has conducted a brutal war, indiscriminately bombing civilian areas, targeting hospitals and other medical facilities, arresting, torturing and disappearing thousands and even using chemical weapons against sleeping families. On May 19th, Syria was embraced by the rulers of the Arab world. The evidence of the Assad regime's crimes are clearly visible across the country, in the bombed-out buildings, the ruined infrastructure, and the empty spaces in countless families. It can also be seen beyond Syria's borders, in the refugee communities that still live scattered across the region. So there are approximately 6.8 million um, Syrians who are currently refugees in countries outside of Syria. Um, This includes both neighboring countries, so approximately 5.7 million um, in uh, countries in the region, uh, including Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, and then also Iraq and Egypt and other countries as well. And then approximately 1 million in Europe as, as refugees. This is Reva Dingra. Reva is a postdoctoral fellow at the Brookings Institution in the Foreign Policy Division and works with the Centre for Middle East Policy with a particular focus on issues related to Syrian refugees. What are the, the sort of big three countries that are hosting refugees currently are Turkey, where there are approximately 3 million registered refugees, and then Lebanon, which has uh, over 800,000 registered Syrian refugees, and then Jordan, which has over 650,000 registered Syrian refugees. And I say registered because we unfortunately don't know uh, exactly the number of unregistered Syrian refugees, and governments are giving different figures um, to that end. In 2016, Jordan counted 1.2 million Syrians in the country, or twice the number of registered refugees. Likewise, Turkey is believed to be playing host to hundreds of thousands of unregistered refugees. Lebanon stopped registering refugees between 2015 and 2016, although they continued to cross the border well after that date. Many of them have started families over the past decade in the host countries. Life for these refugees is sadly predictably difficult. While Turkey started well, offering shelter and services over the years, a growing anti-refugee sentiment has been rising in the country, fuelled by political rhetoric. In Lebanon, raids and forced deportations have become the norm against a backdrop of politicians blaming Syrians for all the country's ills. Arguably, Jordan has performed the best, extending education and services to Syrian refugees, but this is due mainly to the collaborative efforts that the Hashemite Kingdom has entered into with Western nations. In light of the alarming pace of normalisation between the Assad regime in Damascus and Arab nations 
there is a real fear that forced deportations would become the norm. That's absolutely a fear. I think that Arab uh, governments using this as a signal that the the situation with Syria is um, being restored to some level of normalcy, that areas within Syria are safe. They don't even need to use that rhetoric. Um, it's been key on the agenda of, for example, Jordan has been pushing for these efforts, even though Jordan, um, you know, has been engaging in deportations not to the level of of Lebanon or of Turkey, but, um, you know, they've been pushing for this normalization campaign, both because of the drug trade, um, but also the issue of refugees. So it's these two issues that have um, really been emphasized over and over again by Arab governments as the driver for normalization efforts. While both Jordan and Lebanon are doing their fair share to politicize the issue of Syrian refugees in the worst way possible, Turkey which is currently experiencing a highly contested election cycle, is putting both of these countries to shame. Nerolos Hussein, a Syrian refugee in Turkey, described her fears. Of course I will be scared if the opposition wins. Sure, it's true that it's our country and that we should go back there one day, but not in these conditions. The situation is very bad there. I can't imagine myself going back now. The issue of Syrian refugees in the country was on the agenda in the run-up to the first round of voting. But when opposition candidate Kemal Kilic Dorolu underperformed, he grabbed hold of the issue in an attempt to secure the vote of the far right in Turkey. One voter in Antakya shared his views. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, our president allowed more Syrian refugees into Turkey. It's too much. This is not very good for Turkey. A country can't easily take that many. We want the refugees to leave our country as soon as possible. They are taking over our territory. So now we say, that's enough. While Syria is split between a handful of controlling powers, since 2020, the level of violence has dropped significantly people are still killed in outbreaks. But the level is far less than previous years. Might this be reason enough for Syrians themselves to elect to go back to their homeland? Raver again. We have plenty of polling data. UNHCR does a survey every year on return intentions and the number of refugees that, uh, or the percentage of, of refugees that are planning to return within the next year is, I think, Uh, about 2%, and more than 70% of refugees don't intend to return within the next five years. And, uh, you know, they don't do that survey in Turkey, but you see um, pretty similar numbers from uh, other surveys in, in, in the Turkish context. Even as conditions in host countries become increasingly hostile, the alternative of returning to Syria remains a far worse prospect. You know, first among those is safety and security. So that is consistently across these surveys um, listed as the main concern for Syrian refugees in going back. Fear of, you know, either uh, violence or um, kidnapping, which has occurred in in cases of already, you know, uh, people deported from Lebanon back to, to Syria being arrested or forced conscription. And, and the security and safety situation is uh, really the, the key driver of hesitance among Syrian refugees to return to Syria. The violence in Syria has shifted from a battlefield conflict setting to a violent criminal environment, sometimes state-orchestrated 
and sometimes at the hands of criminal gangs. But a second and two uh, interlinked uh, secondary conditions that are driving this trend among Syrian refugees to, to not want to return are, are the economic situation and the infrastructure and public service situation. So um, you see a really uh, severe destruction of the, of the civilian infrastructure um, and, and public service infrastructure in Syria. And, you know, in terms of jobs and livelihoods, um, I was I was just in Istanbul and talking to, to friends, you know, salaries are just not enough to cover basic needs, even if you have a job because of the currency crisis, because of increases in, in commodity prices. Even if you have a job, you can't afford, um, you know, day-to-day living. With a looming threat that if they return, they could be arrested, jailed, and maybe worse, or forcibly conscripted into Assad's army. And the fact that to return means living in ever-worsening economic conditions, it's little wonder that so few Syrian refugees choose to voluntarily return. But what about the Assad regime? If normalization with local partners means refugees are forcibly returned, will the regime be happy to take them back? In 2020, they did, with Russia, host a conference in Damascus on the return of refugees. It featured all the usual bloviating from the regime, blaming Western governments and accusing Arab host nations of using the refugee issue in a cynical fashion. Um, And that's also part of the agenda of the government to see if they could use refugee return in a way to... Uh, unlock development aid to unlock assistance for Syria to support returnees that you know they could use to bolster their supporters. Uh, the Syrian government has a well-documented history of of aid theft, so uh, there also could be considerations from that end in terms of you know wanting Syrian refugees to return. Severely strapped for cash, one incentive for the Syrian government to take back refugees would be the aid payments from foreign nations and institutions, which sadly would be unlikely to reach those who need it most. But then on the other side of that, uh, you have spokespeople from the the Syrian government, um, you know, calling refugees traitors, saying that it was good that refugees left because there was a, a sort of cleansing of the nation and basically... Uh, putting forward some very hostile statements towards refugees and while also adding their actual actions in practice, which is, you know, detentions of refugees, security services coming after refugees uh, who had engaged in uh, any forms of political protest. Hatred and fear consume the minds of those in power in Syria. Hatred for those who fled the appalling violence and refused to stay and fight for the authoritarian rule of Assad, and fear that the same people who rose up once before may return and threaten their authority in the future. The recent history of many Syrian refugees has been a process of dehumanization and being used as a tool, a tool to secure aid partnerships with foreign states, a tool to stoke up resentment and win votes, a tool for cheap labor, and now as a tool for geopolitical gains. Malik al-Abdur again. Saudi Arabia, when it decided to normalise with Assad, many of the, of the people who speak on behalf of Saudi Arabia or represent the Saudi thinking immediately said this was about refugees. 
and we're doing this for the benefit of refugees. And when those same refugees said, well, we're not interested in you helping us, you know, we're against the whole principle of normalizing the guy who made us refugees in the first place. The response is that, oh, you're so ungrateful. Here we are being so generous, trying to open channels with Assad to help you. And now you're throwing it in our face. It's fundamentally disingenuous and it's really annoying, if I can say that. So if you're going to normalize with Assad for whatever geopolitical reason or uh, internal reasons or trying to cozy up to China and Russia, that's your business. But don't try to justify this as as a way of helping Syrian refugees because it isn't and it won't help Syrian refugees. Normalization is good for a lot of people, but none of the people who need the most help. It will help advance political objectives. It could ensure a continuation of oil sales into the future. It will not end violence and human rights violations in Syria, although it could bring some economic relief for people living under regime control. If the incoming funds aren't pilfered by those in power. It will likely strengthen political ties and friendship. It will not pave the way for a political settlement, reconciliation or justice. In its worst forms, it could push those who are already desperate to take even greater risks. So this is really a fundamental question of dignity. I mean, do you just throw people back into this prison or perceived prison that's called Syria? that's under the control of people who have really no compunction about killing innocent people, casting them, committing atrocities. And this is all very well documented. It's a really sort of fundamental sort of ethical dilemma. And obviously the response from people in Lebanon is, well, if the Europeans are against it, let them have these refugees. Ultimately, I think Arab normalization with, with Assad will lead to more Syrian refugees arriving on Europe's shores, I believe. Because the idea that people after 12 years are going to go back living under Assad's control, under Assad's, uh, the predation of his security services and, you know, having, it's just, it's beyond, uh, beyond the imagination. And they would much rather risk dying in the seas or ending up in forests in Eastern Europe. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar L. Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.